Today on episode number 409 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Antia Allen and Justin Stewart join me to talk about We're Not Okay. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Antia Allen is an assistant professor of psychology at Pellissippi State Community College with nearly two decades of experience as an educator. She is also the director of the Pellissippi Academy Center for Excellence, or PACE, at the Pellissippi State Community College. She is also adjunct assistant professor at the Summer Principals Academy at Teachers College, Columbia University. Dr. Allen is the owner of Allen Ivy Prep Consulting, which specializes in career coaching and professional development for higher ed job seekers. Also joining on today's episode is co-editor Justin Stewart. He's a faculty career coach for Allen Ivy Prep Consulting and the co-editor of We're Not Okay, Black Faculty Experiences and Higher Education Strategies. Justin's work in higher education began in 2016, working at Georgia State University, where he assisted the project coordinator in the department's national international recruitment for faculty and postdoctoral fellows. Alongside his work in education, Justin is also in the corporate banking industry as part of the technology business unit risk management where he serves as an independent, first-line-of-defense risk partner within enterprise technology. Dr. Antia Allen and Justin Stewart, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. I want to start out with a quick story, and that is one about my mom. When I was little, and still today, actually, she would go into the bookstore, and the very first thing that she wanted to do was flip to the end of the book and read the end of the book first. And so, while I did not do that with your book, I imagined my mom picking it up and starting at the end, and I really do think that might be a great place for us to start our conversation today. So, Justin, I'm going to quote you here. You end the book talking about this. I'm reading from your words. Your voice is important Your individuality is important. Your presence is important. Justin, why is this such an important message to get across to Black faculty today? Thank you, Bonnie. And, you know, before we start, I definitely want to thank you again, uh, Auntie and I, uh, for this opportunity to discuss with you. Uh, When it comes to that quote, I think whether it be within the confines of higher education or in the industries or in general, Um, I think a lot of people on a day-to-day basis deal with a lot of insecurities. I think especially for black and brown faculty or black and brown professionals in general, uh, when it comes to being being in professional environments or being in environments where they're the minority, there is this image or is this, there's this stigma of what it is when you look at yourself as a black individual, when you look at yourself as a educator, whether you look at yourself as in, as a banker, any type of industry. And it's 
a juggling act of dealing with, you know, identity and being authentic. And for black and brown faculty with that particular quote, as you are put in these situations, as you are put in these environments where, you know, you're essentially inspiring the youth of tomorrow, the future of tomorrow, the future of today, however we want to describe it. They need to always feel as though they're in a safe environment. You always need to feel as though you're in a safe environment to be 100% yourself. And I think with that message, not only for Black faculty, but also the institutions that employ Black faculty, we have to always keep in the front of our mind that we want people to bring their true selves, as long as it's, you know, something that's productive. And I think that we encounter for many Black faculty where they feel as though they have to kind of mask themselves or they have to present themselves in the best light as dictated by a vast majority, which in more often times than not is a uh, white male majority. And, you know, they just need the opportunity to be myself and show myself as opposed to just being what I think that you believe I should be in order for me to um, essentially excel or even even survive um, in higher education. Antia, as we continue to begin at the end, that same chapter quotes James Baldwin as he wrote, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Would you talk about the importance of facing that which needs to be changed? Sure. So when I think about the reason for us even having this book, for you know the need for this book, it was because of so many people going through hardships at their job and always kind of, you know, being put in positions where maybe someone's gathering data about, hey, what are your experiences? What's happening with you? Um, Let's talk about it. Let's share. But then leaving it right there, like not going past that point. And so it's not just about let's share what's going on and let's share what needs to be changed but let's actually change it. Um, And unfortunately, what we found through writing this book, what I'm sure we've seen with our own experiences is that those who, especially in this, well, more specific to this book, black faculty who are in that position of dealing with multiple things that they're dealing with at their workplace, whether it be microaggressions, whether it be people questioning their competence, questioning why why they're there, questioning their, their merit, et cetera, while they're dealing with that, they're also usually tasked with being the ones to make the change. And the reason why that's an issue is because it's it's almost saying, oh, you're, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that diversity label may be. You should be the best expert at this. Let me task you with this. Now you're tasking someone who's already dealing with a lot, who's probably already overloaded with work, Right. And now we want you to be the one to fix the problem that you are are having to deal with. So it's so important that we even bring that to light. The idea that there are things that need to be changed. I'm glad that this book actually is offering strategies for how to change it. And part of that is hiring experts, taking the time to invest that money in hiring experts to really be a part of that change. Not to say that I'm a Black faculty member, I consider myself an expert, but everyone is not, and everyone does not have the time or the passion to put into this type of work. 
So you write in the book that there's no single panacea to treat all the mental health struggles that they may face. It's vitally important that black and brown faculty continue to tell their stories. Thanks for being here today to tell your stories and the stories of so many others. We're going to begin with the title of your book, which is We're Not Okay. (laughs) We're Not Okay. And we're going to look at four aspects of how black faculty today are not okay. Let's begin talking a little bit about a lack of representation. Justin, would you share about how we are not aligning in many cases our faculty with the student demographics? No problem. So I think I'll do a small pivot. One of the things that we looked at that we mentioned in the book is when you, if you Google search the tent, the name or the title of professor, teacher, and you just see some of the images that pop up, they're stock images, but it's, it's usually a certain image that you see. It's usually a, like you said, a white male. In some instances, it'll be a white female, but it's predominantly a white male. And I think even going into looking into my educational background, K through 12, I had maybe like a speckle of black faculty. It was only when I went to an HBCU, historically black, that obviously I had more black faculty. One of the issues when we're looking at we're not okay when it comes to representation is, you know, we speak about culture, we speak about community, we speak about, you know, being the embodiment of everything that we see on a day-to-day basis. And we go to colleges, whether it be our predominantly white institutions, sometimes HBCUs, but for the sake of this conversation, PWIs, and it's it's immersed with Black, Brown, Hispanic, Asian, all of these different cultures. And it's a melting pot when it comes to student body. But when you step into these, these classrooms, speaking again to the Google search, it's traditionally a certain teacher that you see. And for whether it be a Black teacher, whether it be an Asian teacher, whether it be an Indian teacher, when you're continuously faced, when you're continuously not seeing the appropriate representation for a student, you think to yourself, like, would I potentially become an educator? Would I become a faculty member? If it's not what I'm seeing, then how does that inversely affect me? Like, how is, what is that reinforcing in my mind? Because you also look at it with sports, music, you see all these different things and you see a certain image. So you assume that because this is, this is what I see, this is what it is. One of the problems that we do face because of this when it comes to representation, as I mentioned, is those that are part of the marginalized communities feeling as though they are kind of pigeonholed or blackballed into a certain aspect of higher education. You may see black staff, you may see black employees, but they're generally in certain services. You might see them in the cafeteria, you might see them in the bookstore, you might see them in uh, janitorial services, but you're not seeing them as your educator. So that that continues to kind of like diminish the light of a young student that, you know, I want to become a faculty because it's almost like I can't I can't do it here. And while we definitely want to encourage, you know, giving back to HBCUs and the history that goes to HBCUs, I shouldn't have to feel as though I have to go to these particular schools in order to see myself because it's always about reflection and something that I shared at the top was, you know, authenticity and identity. And the lack of representation that we have at these schools leads not only to the current Black faculty and kind of feeling as though they're isolated on an island on their own. And I feel like there's nobody that understands some of the issues that I go through or when there are certain issues that do come up in the country. I can't speak to anybody about it. 
So there's that's another aspect that I didn't share. But when it comes to the student and educating the future of tomorrow, if I'm a student and I don't see myself currently as an educator, how can I actually see myself tomorrow being an educator for students? I have to agree. Also, just another thing that comes to mind is that sometimes when you talk about representation and you talk about the need for a more diverse faculty population, we always go to this is good for students who are of the same. Right. So if I'm a black faculty member, this will be good for black students and it will be good for black students, but it'll also be good for white students and it'll be good for Asian students. Right. Like to see that. Oh, so this is another role that a black person can hold. It's not just, you know, some of what Justin pointed out, which are all noble professions, but it's still there's still a need to see more diversity throughout, not just in certain professions. So I think that's one thing that always kind of gets lost This, you know, well, this is just for this particular target group. No, this is for everyone. Like, I, I don't want my students to see me come into the classroom and be shocked because I'm black and I'm teaching them. Right. And also because I am black and I have an, and I have authority in this room that they now have to kind of get accustomed to because they may have never had a black authority figure in their lives. So, you know, there's a lot of layers there that I feel like there's, it just presses on the point that we need. We definitely need that representation. So you stress the importance of being able to show up in the spaces and places where we work and where we teach in the fullness of ourselves. And the Mm -hmm. second problem that you identify throughout the book, unfortunately, is not the case that we're always able to do that. So could you talk about black and brown trauma? and how this plays into the context. Sure. So one of the the things that really brought all this out, we were already talking about the book before, you know, major events that occurred in the world, such as the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. This was already a conversation and it was already a conversation because of what people were going through on a daily basis and what they were struggling with. And I think when those situations occurred in society and that combined with the pandemic, it made it an even harder situation for people who are already having a tough time and who are already struggling. And on top of that, there were things going on in the country that they knew were like, we know this is happening. We know that people are hurting. We know that people are being discriminated against. But yet when I get into my institution and I start, you know, maybe, I mean, at that time during the pandemic, it was more on Zoom. No one's addressing it. Everyone's acting like it's not going on. But here I am really having to almost in a way bottle it up so I can get through this meeting and then get to the next meeting. Right. Or you might log on to a Zoom and people are sharing very different opinions than you thought they would. Right. You know, you have the Black Lives Matter movement and you might have, you know, colleagues talking about fear fear of black people without saying fear of black people saying, oh, the fear of these violent thugs in the street, you know, like forgetting the reason for these people being out here fighting for BLM and also not recognizing that there are other people out there. Everyone out there is not black. Right. That, and that's another part of it. So, yeah. So having to deal with all of that can be a lot. I mentioned earlier about the old being overloaded. And this is true. I've noticed this is true for anyone who is where's that diversity label. If there are search committees, you're going to be on almost every one 
if there's very few of you. So if we only have three black faculty members and that is the height of our diversity, then these three black faculty members are being stretched across every search committee there is. I remember at once, I remember, I'll tell a really quick story. I was trying to schedule a meeting with a group that I was working with at my institution. um, And I had a faculty member say, oh, I can't attend this meeting because I'm gonna be on my first search committee. And I really need to make sure I get there for the training. And I've been at the institution, I don't know, maybe like two years. And I had been on like six. And this person had been at the institution for like 30 years. And this was her first. And it just kind of like made my head go, because I was already overloaded with so many other things, with so many other committees I was involved on that I just could not believe like, oh, why didn't they utilize her? And I totally, I totally understand the need for that diversity on the committee. But I just felt like, wow, here I am stressed out, overloaded with work, trying to figure out how I'm also going to review a hundred applications and also do my grading. And I have a colleague here who has never even had the experience of being on a search, being on a search committee. So yeah, there's so so one of the one of the bit of that a bit of that trauma is the stress. You know, and one thing that we mentioned in the book is that we all know. We all know that stress is not just does not stop at psychological. Stress moves on to physical, and now we have medical problems as a result of what we are going through at work, a place that we really want to be because this is the work that we really want to do, right? This is a this is a different type of profession. When people become educators, it's usually something that they're really passionate about, right? They're passionate about the topic. They're passionate about educating, as as Justin pointed out, the future and to get into that really excited, really passionate, and then to quickly be broken down, to quickly be broken down with, you know, little subtle comments, which are microaggressions, you know, which we all know doesn't, don't always mean that somebody's being malicious, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, right? Just because the point isn't to be malicious doesn't mean that it isn't harmful. It isn't going to hurt me. So, I mean, and so many people, so many faculty are dealing with burnout. But Black faculty were dealing with burnout for many, many years before the pandemic, you know. And so that's one thing that we really wanted to come across in the book. And then to add on top of that, a lot of people don't know what we're going through as Black faculty because we are so resilient. And that does that also comes up in the book. We can many of us, I shouldn't say all of us, but many of us are very resilient. Many of us are getting it all done. Right. So I talked about being all these on these committees. I'm getting it all done. I'm doing it well. Oh, so she must be happy. Not necessarily, right? And that's another part of it is like, we're not okay, but we're not always comfortable telling people we're not okay because we don't know if we can trust those people. And as Justin pointed out about safe spaces, we don't know, we don't always feel safe at our institutions. As, as you know, Bonnie, if you are an educator and you're trying, if you're on a tenure track, or you're trying to go up for promotion, you really have to be very careful. And that's no matter who you are, you have to be very careful about what you say because it can be taken, someone can take it and run with it, right? And that could be the difference between you being promoted or not. That could be a difference between you getting tenure or not. So many times people do have to struggle in silence and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, really. And I think the additional thing that, and Tia did mention that is 
we have to continue to stress, whether it be in our conversation today or in general. Uh, so with everything in the overload, it's about having that necessary necessary support. So Bonnie, you're asking about, you know, mental trauma. We think about it, we have all of these resources for students that are dealing with mental health and that are, you know, needing mental health days, but what are we doing for the faculty members? From everything that Antia has detailed, that's a lot. That's that's more than a lot. That's an excessive amount. And these are, they, they come in, do their job and they go home. Some people go home and just have to, you know, work myself up to do it again even dealing with all this burden. One of the things that Antia stressed is I can do all this work, but I think unfortunately somebody will look at us like, oh my God, you're, you're doing so well. And it's like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to do it. I understand that it's necessary, but it's about having that type of support system or someone that can go in there and say, hey, let's make this a little bit more efficient for you. Let's help you work smarter, not harder. I've seen some ways that, you know, you're, you're kind of burning out. I see what's going on. And I just want to avoid that happening because Antia can do as much as she wants. Any other black faculty can do as much as they want, but there's going to be a point where you tap out. But because of that, you know, stigma or you don't want to be stereotyped or you want to be categorized as a certain way, you're just going to keep pushing through and you're going to keep breaking yourself down mentally, keep breaking yourself down socially, psychologically, all of that. And it just, in the moment, it's fine, but in the end, it never ends well for that individual because they're just going to end up sacrificing a lot more uh, than they were intending to. So I think being able to have that type of support within, you know, these organizations is, you know, it's critical. You've touched on this already a little bit about the uneven expectations, and I think maybe uneven is not a severe enough word to describe that. I mean, one of the aspects would be tokenism. And I'm quoting from the book here, during the course of my tenure at this university, I was so intent on managing this intricate act of survival, advocacy, and scholarship. And your story was so powerful, Antia, earlier, as far as you talking about being on a, so many search committees, as, as opposed to the expectations just were not there for a, a fellow colleague. What else can you tell us about these uneven expectations? And again, I'm not sure that's the best word that I've selected there, but uh, it doesn't seem precise enough. What else can you tell us about how this plays out? So when we're looking at different aspects of it, when we're looking at hiring committees, when we're looking at anything that deals with diversity or more specifically deals with African-American diversity, it's to what Antia mentioned, it's assumed of, hey, you got it, right? And like I said, we're not, you shouldn't assume someone's an expert, but because of the fact that you're kind of isolated, as I mentioned earlier, or, you know, token, you want to make sure that you're projecting the best image. I think, unfortunately, you find yourself in situations where you're kind of surviving as opposed to thriving. Uh, so when we're looking at hiring committees and you are one of you're the only black person, you're continuously inundated with the task of being on a hiring committee, being on a hiring committee, but then still having publications to take care of. If you're going through the tenure track, still being not burdened, but still being tasked with a slew of other things on your plate. But it's also saying that, you know, you're the you're this particular minority. We need you added to this. We need you added to this. We need you added to this. But we still need you to do what you regularly have to do to get off these particular uh, metrics, we'll just say. 
whether it be trying to go for your tenure. So it's that it's just that that weight that just, you know, brings your body down more and more because it's you're continuously being let's put something else. Let's put something else. Let's put something else and never asking. It's almost like a stubbornness of I'm going to continue to do it because I understand the necessary or how necessary it is, but not having that conversation or someone not reaching out to you saying, is this too much or telling you this is too much? It's almost like I'm going to keep feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. I, I see you're full, but I'm going to keep feeding you regardless. And it's what I mentioned about, you know, surviving and not being able to thrive when you're so tasked with being pulled this way, that way, as Antia mentioned, it's almost like, when can I truly focus specifically on what I focus on what I want to focus on. And I can't, I can't afford to falter. I can't afford to fail on any of these other things. But at the same time, I'm being stretched to the point where I'm going to explode. It's I'm getting stretched to the point where I'm going to, I'm going to burn out. As we've mentioned, I'm getting stretched to the point where this is going to be too much and where somebody would make, somebody may look at it and say, we may be tasking with too much, you would assume that would be the case, but you have many instances where it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe you can't do it. It's almost as though you're judged for your inability or you're judged for slipping up. You're doing 101 things. And if you mess up on that one thing, oh, well, you know, I don't, is something going on? Is there something that we could help you with? It's like, is it too much? And it almost feels as though you're, you're accommodating me for something that I shouldn't be necessarily responsible for. If we were able to sprinkle this out accordingly or sprinkle this out sparingly, then I wouldn't be so pressured to feel as though I have to step to this task. And I wouldn't not only step to the task, but kind of knock it out the park because I am that quote unquote token person, or I am that quote unquote standard that I don't want to be, but because I'm one of a few or not, or one of the only I am kind of that definition. And as a result, there's a lot of extra pressure to not only take on things, but excel. Because if I don't get it done, then nobody's going to get it done. And if I falter, some people may look at it as though I failed. And I think the another I guess sad part about that is the fact that when you when you are a token at an institution, you many times feel like you're representing your entire race. And so when you fail, it's almost like people aren't just going to see it as, oh, Dr. Allen failed. They're going to see it as black faculty just are just not the you don't want to you don't. That's not somebody you want to select, because when we had a black faculty member here before, this is what happened. You know, so sometimes there's the pressure of being the only one. You know, like I know for me, no one told me like, yeah, you have to do well at any institution you're at, especially if you're one of very few. But I know I get a sense of it from being at institutions, how things work and understanding that, hey, it's I mean, it's sad to say, but it's like, hey, if I work really well, work really hard and I do really well, then they might say, oh, we can hire more black faculty members, you know, because this 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 one worked out, you know, like and, and that's sad to say, but it's also true. So it's that's a that's another added burden of being the representative for a entire group of people, which you cannot be. We, we, we just simply can't be. We are so different. We are diverse within ourselves, you know, which a lot of people don't recognize. One thing that I've liked when we've done presentations um, at institutions is being able to see non-Black colleagues 
just kind of hear these stories when we kind of read, you know, read excerpts of um, experiences that Black faculty have had at institutions across the U.S. And just having the non-Black colleagues say, I had no idea. I had no idea this was going on, you know, and then feeling like they're called to do something like, what can we do? You know, what should we do? And that's what I want from the book. I think that's what we all wanted from this book. Like, so we know that there are people who do know what's going on. Like I said, you know, you're collecting the data, you're getting all the, gathering all the experiences. So there are people who do know what's going on, but we do have to recognize there are people who have no idea because in, in higher ed, we tend to work in silos. We don't always know. We don't even know what people are doing in the next department. Sometimes I don't know what my colleagues doing in the same discipline. You know what I mean? So um, it's not a shock that someone wouldn't know what was what someone was going through. So that's why I, I keep saying, you know, there's there's a part of this book about bringing awareness, but then there's also a part of this book of providing strategies for those people who, once they read this, say, I, I want to do something, I need to do something, because this can't stay this way. And I have, I had no idea that this was going on, and I want to help my colleague. I want to be an ally to my for my colleague. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to share about a few of the programs that are showing promise that, that you've been able to identify. But before we do that, we would be leaving out a big part of the conversation, and that is around intersectional burdens. Antia, could you share a little bit about intersectional burdens and specifically the role that mothering, mother figures, other mothering comes into the story here? Yeah, so um, one thing that comes out in the book quite a bit, because we we do have several contributing authors that are Black and Brown women, you know, you're hired to be a faculty member to teach a course. There's always some service involved, some advising involved, possibly. But the issue comes when you are tasked with having to almost care for all of the black and brown students at your institution. And we spoke earlier about, you know, how unequal those numbers are. And, you know, you can just look, you can look at the demographics to almost any institution and you will notice um, as far as PWIs, almost any institution. And you will notice that there are almost always more students of color than there are faculty of color. And so there's this idea that, especially as a woman, oh, you should be nurturing you should be loving. You should be caring. Here's a black or brown student for you to take care of. I'm sending them to you. But I have a lot of other things on my plate, right? Not to say that I don't want to help my student be successful, but just to say this wasn't necessarily my role here. Also, that's a stereotypical role, right? Every every woman is not nurturing. Every woman is not, you know, motherly or maternal, I should say, and does not want to be maternal. So you're putting a pressure on someone that they did not expect when they were coming into the workplace. And so that's definitely one part of that, which I, I, I know comes out in the book. And there's this one part that just stands out to me where a faculty member talks about how their colleagues, their white colleagues are always bringing black and brown students to them. And that's really the only time they have a conversation with them. That's really only the only time that they interact with them. And so something else that comes up in the book is inclusion. So how do I feel like I'm, I belong in a place? How do I feel like I'm valued in a place if the people who I work with 
don't want to take the time to build a relationship with me. They only want to use me to care for black and brown students, you know, and I've had it happen to me. It's not it's not always like, you know, I teach psychology. This is someone who might want to major in psychology. No, it's just this student is black and you're black. And they never say that. They always say, I have a student who would be great to send to you. I think you all should talk. And I already know, like I already know the student is black before I even meet the student. And so at first the student would just show up and we both sit there like, why are we here? (laughs) I don't know why you're here. (laughs) You don't know why I'm here. And it's because it was like, you know, we're just gonna send you to this particular person because this is a black woman and she's a faculty member and maybe she can help you with whatever it is or maybe this is somebody you can connect with. And it's just, again, we are diverse within ourselves. I, you know, I've I've taught in places where I'm not from. I'm from New York City. I've taught in New York City. I've taught in New Jersey. I've taught in, you know, Tennessee. So that's a diversity all in itself coming from different places. That's a cultural difference. And so we may not connect just because we're black. We may not. There might be a white faculty member who may have been a better fit for this person if they need advising. Or what if they're interested in STEM? I'm I'm not in STEM. Do you know what I mean? So it's like you are only tasking me with this because you see me as someone who could be nurturing to this particular student. Not because you feel like I have the expertise, not because we built a relationship and you feel like, oh, now I can send this student to, to you because I know that you all would be a good fit for each other. It's really just based on that stereotypical role of the Black woman caring for whoever. Or really just, I mean, we think about that women in general, we're, we're always meant to be nurturers. As we close out this part of the conversation, and thank you so much for those examples, I feel like we've just skimmed the surface. So thank you. Thank you both for for the examples. The stories are so profound. And I want to close a little bit with some, I don't know if it goes too far to say hope. I know you have have identified some programs that are showing some promise. You do say focus is not on perfection as much as on potential. Would you share a little bit about some of these programs and why you feel they, they, they are showing some promise? So we highlighted um, a few different institutions and within those institutions, we we spoke with the representatives who shared a ton of the initiatives that they're working on that have been effective programs. And I wish we could have included them all. Even in that chapter, we haven't even included everything that was shared with us because we had to condense it a bit. What I what I like is that we actually have different perspectives as far as, you know, what different types of institutions, right? So we have large public institutions, we have private institutions, we have instances, we actually have an HBCU there as well. So really getting different perspectives from different types of institutions, which I think is very important because we know that people from different institutions will be reading this and they'll be looking for something that they feel is going to relate to them. And so I'll just name a few. There at one of the institutions, they talk about connection events. And like I said, there were so many connection events, but the ones, one of the ones that we included was a book club. I thought the book club was awesome because one of the things they, they state is that they 
choose books that are in the library. And so we all love free. We all we all know when it comes to these these different things, it's a lot easier to get something started if it doesn't require much money. So they can get these books in the library. They have a diverse group of people who are reading these books. They have diverse books that they choose from. But then also they they focus on fiction books which I thought was really interesting and not nonfiction. And the reason for focusing on fiction books was because it was a, it was very different to be able to speak about a character versus speaking about a real person, right? It's almost like you're not going to judge me as much if I speak about this character in this book that happens to be trans, that happens to be black, that happens to be disabled, et cetera. But if I were talking about a nonfiction book, a real person, I may not actually, I may not feel as comfortable to speak because I may feel like you're going to look at me differently based on the way I talk about this particular person. I thought that was one, that was one that stood out to me. Another part, another program I should say was at a a private university, which is a more religious affiliation, Christian type of university. And they talked about different spiritual initiatives and just this idea of how important spirituality tends to be to black people, not all, but, you know, just understanding that that may be a part for not just black people, obviously, you know, several people are very spiritual and then, and they look to that as a source of comfort. They look to that when they need to cope with things. And so I thought it was really important for us to have that piece in there to talk about things like having a request for prayer, you know, just filling out a little form and someone will come to your office and pray with you. I'm sure, you know, a little different over uh, during the pandemic, maybe virtually, maybe over the phone, having opportunities to go to chapel, you know, and whether that be, again, we know that people could go in person, but during the pandemic, people could go virtually. And it was amazing to see the number, the number of people who were attending chapel virtually. So it just lets you know how important it was for people, how it really was helping them get through a tough time. And, you know, just kind of, and I, I like that all of these, like just those two different examples are so very different, but yet they're going to work for someone. And so I think that was a big part of that, that chapter. It was like, you know what? I'm not saying that these are perfect examples, for any one institution, you might need to modify these a little bit to make them fit for yours. But I, I do believe that it was important to show show programs that had the potential to work really well at different places. Before Antia and Justin and I get to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to take a brief moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. As you've heard me share many times on prior episodes, Text Expander is one of the first things I install on any new computer. And what I love that it does is it saves up text that I commonly would need to type or remember, and it allows me to easily program in what are called snippets. I type a few characters that are easy for me to remember, and automatically it expands into something that's either hard for me to remember, or that is a lengthy bit of text. So every time I type up the show notes for an episode, it has all of the information I need. I can even really easily have it prompt me for things. What's the name of the guest What's the name of the episode? What's the number? And all of that information gets populated in a consistently written and communicated piece of information. And we can even share it among teams, which really expands the possibilities for Text Expander as well. Just the other day, I got an idea for refining 
a little bit of my text expander snippet. And it always just feels so good. It actually adds up how much time I'm saving over time and reminds me of what a beneficial tool that it is. I've been using text expander for a lot longer than they've been a sponsor and they've been the longest running sponsor of teaching in higher ed. I encourage you to head over to textexpander.com slash podcast and give it a free trial. There's a special offer for listeners of the podcast and please let them know that you heard about text expander from teaching in higher ed. Again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast. Thank you both so much. This is actually the time in the show where we get to each share our recommendations. And I wanted to recommend two things. The first one is going to come as a complete surprise to people, but I'd like to recommend your book. The full title is We're Not Okay, Black Faculty Experiences and Higher Education Strategies. And I have both of the co-editors here with me today. Thank you so much for your time. And I love that you provided me with the perfect transition to my second recommendation. And that was when you talked about the having them read fiction books. I want to recommend a work of fiction, although I want to recommend a movie instead of a book, but it is a movie that is fiction, but really raises some really important issues that I think are important for people to talk about. The movie is called Turning Red, and it is an animated feature, uh, Pixar's latest as of this recording. And it uh, the description I'm reading here is a 13-year-old girl named Mei Lin turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too excited. I would like to share that one of our two children, her favorite animal for years now has been red pandas. So since the second that she heard there was a movie coming out about red pandas, she has been incessantly excited about it. And I never thought it would live up to adult expectations for a movie, but it was delightful. It caused, we watched it all together as a family, caused a lot of laughter, but again, a lot of really important conversations. And I've loved the way that the conversations have extended beyond kids. So those are my two recommendations for today. And I will pass it over Antia to you for yours. So I want to recommend my therapy cards. They were created by Dr. Ebony Butler. She started with my therapy cards for Black men, and then her second edition was for Black women. And now she's coming out with a teen edition of my therapy cards. So really trying to break the stigma um, when it comes to therapy. Also, you know, obviously, given that representation that we talked about in these cards, really focused on growth and development. So that's my recommendation. Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to checking those out. And Justin, what about for you? What would you like to recommend today? So I also want to recommend Turning Red. Watched that a couple of weeks ago. So oh, so glad I get to join you in that. For, uh, that recommendation. Awesome. Uh, but when it comes to a, to a book, I wanted to recommend The Gaslight Effect. So it's by a therapist, Dr. Robin Stern. And for myself, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the call, like we're dealing with a lot of insecurities. We're dealing with a lot of things when we look at image and stuff. And it's just being able to identify relationships with people, whether it be personal relationships, professional relationships, uh, people that you have in your home, people that you encounter every day, and just for me, just always keeping in mind a certain sense of self, uh, because I think there are certain relationships that you have that are valuable to you now and valuable to you later in life, but there's also relationships that are valuable for you in the moment and some relationships that you just need to throw away. And I think throughout the book, it just kind of identifies that and just sees like how 
there are certain strategies, manipulative strategies that people kind of use to weigh in on their best interests when it's not your best interests. And I think a lot of people deal with that like on a day-to-day basis. And I just think from reading that book, it just allowed me to reevaluate some of the relationships that I have, or even also looked at certain behaviors that I have, why it's not, while it's not intentional and while it's not malicious, but certain things that I may do that could be for the best benefits of myself without realizing the person that I'm interacting with and seeing how much it actually impacts them. So I definitely want to recommend that for anybody. Well, thanks to both of you for being a guest on Teaching in Higher Ed, and thanks for this work. I meant to use the word necessary, which Justin helped me with before we pressed record today. It's a necessary book, and I'm, I'm just uh, thankful to your co-authors and to each of you for being editors and, and curating all of these important stories and important research and necessary. Um, thank you so much for being a guest today on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to Dr. Antia Allen and Justin Stewart for joining me on today's episode about your book, We're Not Okay, Black Faculty Experiences and Higher Education Strategies. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to subscribe to the weekly update of Teaching in Higher Ed and get all the great links and recommendations showing up in your inbox once a week, along with some other goodies that don't show up during the episode or in the main show notes, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and that will get you added to the weekly update. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community, and I'll see you next time.